Section 12 of Feminism in Greek Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Feminism in Greek Literature by Frederick Adam Wright. Chapter 12 The Attic Orators. To turn from Plato's ideal state to the actual condition of woman's life during the 4th century in Athens, as we have it revealed in the pages of the orators, is like passing from a breezy hillside into a dark, close-shut room. We see the working of the harem system with all its atmosphere of secrecy and suspicion. The women are closely watched, for it is presumed that they will be unfaithful to their husbands if they can. They live secluded in the women's quarter of the house, the gynaeconitis, and for any strange man to enter their rooms is a grave impropriety. In Demosthenes, for example, we find it imputed to Androtion, as a proof of unbearable insolence, that in his capacity of tax collector he forced his way into the women's apartments, and compelled the master of the house to hide under the bed, putting him thus to shame before his womankind. That a wife should appear publicly with her husband at a dinner party, and take a share in men's pleasures, is equally an offence against morality. Niera was known to have sat at dinner with her husband and his friends, and this fact, testified by witnesses, is taken as an obvious proof that she was a woman of abandoned character. The sister of Nicodemus, Isius argues, could not have been legally married, for she was often seen at entertainments with the man she called her husband, and wedded wives do not go out to dinner with their husbands or expect to join in festivities. The doctrine that a wife is her husband's property is applied to the fullest extent, and any offence against that property is punished with the utmost rigour of the law. A husband who finds another man in his harem is allowed to put him to death. At Athens there is no pretence of the sanctity of marriage. The offence and the punishment is the same whether the intrigue is with the master's wife or with his concubine. Each is equally the master's property, to be protected at any cost. It is a more heinous crime to make love to a woman who belongs to another man than to offer her violence, for the offence is viewed solely from the owner's side, and a woman who willingly yields to another is outraging her lawful master's amour propre more deeply than if she were taken by force. The lover is put to death, the ravisher pays a fine, the point of view being much the same as used to hold in English law, where the wife-beater was regarded as a less offensive character than the poacher. But if the husband of an erring wife had the support of the law, however violent his methods of revenge, the case was very different when the woman was the offended party. There is an anecdote in Plutarch's Life of Alcibiades which reveals the attitude of the Athenian lawgivers. Hipparity made a prudent and affectionate wife, but at last growing very uneasy at her husband's associating with such a number of courtesans, both strangers and Athenians, she quitted his house and went to her brother's. Alcibiades went on with his debaucheries, and gave himself no pain about his wife, but it was necessary for her, in order to obtain a legal separation, to give in a bill of divorce to the Archon, and to appear personally with it, for the sending of it by another hand would not do. When she came to do this according to law, Alcibiades rushed in, caught her in his arms, and carried her through the marketplace to his own house, no one presuming to oppose him or to take her from him. From that time she remained with him until her death, which happened not long after, when Alcibiades was on his voyage to Ephesus. Nor does the violence used in this case seem to be contrary to the laws either of society in general, or of that republic in particular. 
for the law of athens in requiring her who wants to be divorced to appear publicly in person probably intended to give the husband an opportunity to meet with her and to recover her plutarch alcibiades langhorne's translation a wife seeking to escape from an unworthy husband we see is regarded in the same light as a slave seeking to escape from his owner and all the resources of the law are put at the disposal of the husband and the master there was a constant tendency to think of women and slaves together and the institution of slavery was certainly one of the most powerful agents in the degradation of women at athens a slave girl was in the eye of the law a thing not a human being and she was free from all restraints of moral sanction she was the property of her owner and her only duty was to obey him in all things virtue chastity modesty were for her things impossible of attainment and over the whole business was cast the protection and encouragement of the law there came into existence a class of women condemned to physical and moral degradation a class whose very existence was an insult to womankind so that aristophanes at least has the wit to see that the establishment of a female government would have as one of its first results the forcible abolition of all such recognized and legal forms of vice women and slaves then were linked together and it must be remembered as professor murray says that people do not become slaves by a legal process they become slaves when they are brought into contact with superiors who have the power and the will to use them as tools there are three principal tests of slavery ancient or modern and in ancient life they will often apply equally well to women firstly slaves are a degraded and immoral class this was continually insisted upon and doubtless one result was to produce in a certain degree the vices falsely imputed to nature secondly their work is despised as unworthy of free men the harder work was left in the hands of slaves or women who did not receive any pay and the superabundant leisure of the male citizen was devoted to the political life thirdly the condition of dependence once fully established soon produces a feeling of despair the willingness to die which is so noticeable in euripides heroines is one of the sure signs of slavery slaves are lacking in spirit some indeed are so completely lacking that they are happy in servitude the impetus to revolt must come from without especially when the servile state has existed for many centuries slavery may be defined as the economic exploitation of the weaker and though it does not exist in our time and land it offers such a convenient basis for civilization that various devices are used even now to take its place there is the theory for example that some kinds of work are higher than others and therefore should be paid on a higher scale or again that the same work if performed by different persons requires different remuneration many estimates of women's inferiority have ultimately an economic basis the more lucrative trades and professions are those for which it is considered that women are temperamentally unfit it is a noticeable fact that all these general conceptions of women's weakness have always been closely connected with their legal status in athens where women could not hold property and an heiress was taken over by the nearest male relative as a necessary encumbrance on the estate the estimate of women's character was very low in alexandria and at rome where women by various devices outwitted the law and became possessed of some degree of economic independence their moral position also changed for the better in england feminism begins with the married women's property act 
but as long as slavery social or economic is not recognized by the law it cannot be the curse that it was to ancient life in athens it was a legal institution owing its validity to much the same mode of thought as made the wife also her husband's chattel it is the business of lawyers to defend the law and if the law is bad their moral sense is necessarily warped in the process so that it is not surprising if the private speeches of the attic orators although they exhibit the natural subtlety of the athenians in a striking light by no means give an equally strong impression of moral rectitude all the orators are the same in this respect demosthenes in matters of state was a high-minded patriot as a lawyer he is like the rest of his colleagues a professional liar and does not scruple to falsify and misrepresent the truth lysias so forgets the man in the advocate that he seems to reserve his highest powers for his worst cases and obviously delights in such a client as the shameless old cripple for whom he writes his most ingenious speech isaeus has no regard for veracity and it has been found by painful experience that his unsupported statements even on simple questions of fact are to put it mildly extremely unreliable as for hiberides he is careless of shame so long as he wins his case and his gesture as he bids his fair client display her charms is like the calculated boldness of the slave dealer offering his girls to the highest bidder but if the orators give us an impression of cunning subtlety which far transcends the bounds that we even now allow to lawyers their clients are in no better case by the middle of the fourth century athens was in full decadence her men had lost all the vigour and courage that brought their country safe through the dangers of the persian wars her women perhaps were even worse than the men corruptio optimi pessima and had sunk into a state of utter degradation impotent old men and designing young women are the chief figures in most of isis speeches and as his editor says to have any confidence in the veracity or virtue of his clients argues a truly arcadian simplicity there is the case of euctemon for example the old man who divorces his wife and leaves his children to live with his slave woman alci this unfortunate whose youth has been degraded for her master's profit has her revenge when the old man grows senile she induces him to remove her from the den of infamy which has been one of the sources of his wealth to live with her in the drinking shop over which she is put in charge and finally to recognize one of her bastards as his own son the family threatened by a second marriage reluctantly consent to help in an adoption which ran counter to the first principles of attic law and it is not until the old man's death when his property falls into dispute that his misfortunes with the woman so the advocate euphemistically describes them come to light the facts of the case are utterly sordid but every detail is enveloped by isius in a cloud of sophistical arguments which show both a complete absence of moral sense in the advocate and so great a faculty of deception that modern writers have inferred it need not be said with how little reason that polygamy was not illegal at athens that concubinage was recognized by law and that bastards have the rights of legitimate children all three statements are untrue but they may fairly be deduced from the ever-shifting arguments that the lawyer uses in another of his cases it is an old man at death's door who marries a young girl and the usual imputations upon the bride's motives form one of his strongest arguments in a third the estate of pyrrhus a woman of notoriously bad life is foisted by her brother upon one of her old lovers and the claim is then made that she is his legal wife 
but to go through the details of Isis' cases would be merely tedious. In all of them we see that moral degradation and absence of social rectitude which was the natural result of the inferiority of women in the eyes of the Attic law. Women, like children, cannot legally enter into a contract, even if it is only to purchase a bushel of corn. The son of a brother has a stronger claim to an intestate property than the son of a daughter, for the law says males must prevail. A daughter cannot inherit in her own person. She is only an intermediary by whom the estate is transmitted through marriage to a male of the same blood as her father. A woman's disabilities are painfully plain in Isius. As for her legal rights, it is hard to discover from his speeches how far they have any actual existence. The orator, at least, when his male clients seem to have the law against them, does not hesitate to appeal to the natural sympathies of the male juryman. In the tenth oration, we see how shamefully an heiress, in spite of the law's formal protection, could be despoiled by her guardian and her brother. It is generally assumed that this male superiority before the law had a religious sanction, the necessity of keeping up the family worship, which could only be done by a man. If we were speaking of a primitive society, the argument would have some force, but the Athenians of the fourth century were at the end rather than the beginning of their national life. Religion was dead, and the foundations of morality undermined. Only the law remained unaltered, that women were the inferior sex. How far women contributed themselves to their degradation may be studied in all the orator's speeches, but two cases are especially significant. Antiphon's murder speech, against the stepmother, and Lysias' defence for the murder of Eratosthenes. The first is grimly horrible in its sordid realism. As Antiphon says, it is the story of Clytemnestra repeated, but divested now of all its tragic romance. Two women are the chief characters, one a free-born Athenian, the wife of the murdered man, the other a slave, the mistress of the man's friend, one Philonius. The facts are these, Philonius gets tired of his mistress's devotion, and determines to rid himself of her by the simple process of selling her into life of utter degradation. He reveals his intention to his friend, and the two men decide to have one last carouse, the girl waiting upon them before she goes to her ruin. But the man's wife, who has found her husband as false to her as Philonius is to his lover, intervenes. She makes the acquaintance of the slave girl, who is still passionately devoted to her worthless master, and persuades her to regain his affection by a love potion which she will provide. The girl agrees, and when the two men meet at dinner, she pours the potion, which, unknown to her, is a deadly poison, into their cups, giving the larger share to her own false lord. Philonius falls dead immediately. The other man collapses and dies some days afterwards. The slave girl is taken and broken on the wheel. The wife is in this speech accused by her stepson of her share in the crime. Antiphon's pleadings throw a lurid light on the relations between men and women in a slave state. The speech of Lysias in defence of Eratosthenes' murder is an even more invaluable document. The orator's client is accused of murder, and relies for his defence on the plea that his victim was taken in adultery and therefore lawfully put to death. The law at Athens, a written, not an unwritten code, is definitely on the accused man's side, but it is curious that this is the only surviving speech in which it is pleaded as an excuse. 
it seems indeed that even the athenians hesitated to use the ferocious power that the law gave them and we may imagine if we will that this was a test case brought perhaps by one of the socratic circle to try the validity of the law in the face of the new feminist doctrines in any event the ionian lysias whose honeyed pen was at the service of the highest bidder was a person thoroughly distasteful to plato and his friends and it is probable that in his speech he had the satisfaction both of defending the established order of social morality and also of striking a shrewd blow at his personal enemies the speech which is a model of art begins with some compliments to the jury and then lysias very ingeniously makes his client tell the simple story of his life when i decided to marry gentlemen and brought a wife into my house i made this my rule of behaviour i did not annoy her with excessive vigilance but on the other hand i did not leave her too much her own mistress to do whatever she pleased i kept as close a guard over her as was possible and took all reasonable care this to conciliate the jury and to show that the damage done was not due to any lack of precautions on the owner's side after a time a child was born and then i began to feel confidence and handed over to her the charge of all my goods thinking that this was the surest bond of union between us at first gentlemen she was the best of women a clever housewife and a thrifty exact in all her management then my mother died and her death has been the cause of all my troubles my wife went to her funeral that fellow saw her walking in the funeral procession and after a time succeeded in corrupting her the jury are meant to draw the inference that women should never leave the house one appearance in public may mean ruin he watched my wife's maid who goes to do the marketing made a proposal to her and soon effected his purpose of seduction i must tell you gentlemen that my humble home is built in two stories the upper part similar in style to the ground floor one containing the women's apartments the other the men's rooms now when our baby was born the mother began by nursing it herself and to avoid any risk of her coming downstairs at bath time i took up my quarters in the upper rooms and the women came down to the ground floor moreover we soon got into the way of my wife leaving me to go and sleep with the baby downstairs so that she might give him the breast and prevent him crying it is of course essential that the master's rest at night should not be disturbed and the jury will agree that this was a legitimate reason for a wife's absence from her proper place this went on for a long time and i never suspected anything such an arrant simpleton was i that i thought my wife the most virtuous woman in athens well gentlemen time passed away and one day i came back home unexpectedly from the country after dinner the baby began to cry and make itself unpleasant the maid was hurting it on purpose to cause a disturbance as i heard afterwards for the fellow was in the house i told my wife to go and give it the breast to stop it crying but at first she would not go she pretended that she was so delighted to see me after my long absence finally when i began to get angry and bade her be off oh yes she said you want to stay here and make love to the parlour-maid i caught you pulling her about the other day when you were drunk at that i smiled and she got up and went away pulling the door to in pretended jest and taking away the key i did not think anything of it nor had i any suspicions indeed i soon fell asleep for i had just come from the country and was glad to get rest it was getting on for daybreak when she returned and opened the door i asked her then why the doors had been banging in the night and she pretended that the child's lamp had blown out and she had gone next door to get a light 
I said nothing and believed her tale. I did, however, notice that her face was covered with powder, although her brother had not been dead a month. But still I said nothing about her conduct. I went out and left the house in silence. White cheeks were highly esteemed at Athens, and when a lady wished to be especially attractive she procured them artificially. In this case the husband is distracted by a double feeling, gratification at his wife's apparent desire to please him, and disgust at her obvious disrespect for a male relative. Some time elapsed after these events, gentlemen, and I had no inkling of my misfortune, when one day an old person came up to me. She was sent, as I heard afterwards, by another woman that fellow had seduced and then abandoned, who, in her rage and indignation, had spied upon him until she found out the reason of his desertion. Well, the old lady came to me near my house where she was watching, and, Euphilitus, said she, don't think that I have come in any spirit of officious interference. The man who is wronging you and your wife, as it happens, is an enemy of mine. If you take the maid who goes to market and does your errands and torture her, you will find out everything. The man is Eratosthenes of Oea. He is responsible for this. He has seduced your wife and many other women besides. That is his trade. So the warning comes, and then events move quickly. The husband takes the servant and, by a mixture of promises and threats, compels her not only to confess, but to betray her mistress. When next the lover comes to the house, it is alleged by the prosecution that he is beguiled there by the husband, and although this is denied, it is regarded as quite a legitimate plot. The maid informs her master. Witnesses are hastily summoned, the door, left unfastened by the girl, is pushed open, and the guilty pair are discovered together. Eratosthenes is struck down, his arms are pinioned, and then in the name of the law and in cold blood, he is killed. The scene is like the last act of Scheherazade, without its barbaric magnificence. Of the woman, nothing is said, and the speaker concludes by reminding his judges that his cause is theirs, and that the only way to prevent illicit love is to take summary vengeance on the lover. The point of view, it will be noticed, as regards the marriage relationship, is very different from that expressed by Plato or Aristotle. Plato regards marriage as a temporary connection dictated by mutual interest and dissolvable at will. Aristotle says, Politics 7, 16, As to adultery, let it be held disgraceful for any man or woman to be unfaithful when they are man and wife. If during the time of bearing children anything of the sort occur, let the guilty person be punished with a loss of privileges in proportion to the offence. The philosophers see that marital fidelity is important chiefly in relation to children and the state, and they attach the same stigma to either of the parties who break the contract. Lysias, as a lawyer, suiting his arguments to a male audience, takes much lower ground. The husband smiles at his own infidelities, but claims the right to commit murder when his wife retaliates. The Eratosthenes is, perhaps, the most vivid picture we have of home life in Athens, but the general impression given by all the orators is much the same. Women are either cowed into hopeless submission, or else they are shamelessly profligate. The occasional exceptions, such as we find in Lysias's speech against Diogeton, where a widow defends her children's interests with skill and vigour, show that the fault was due to the marriage system, rather than to woman's nature. Most of the women, however, are incapable of energy, their prison life has deprived them of the power and will to act. 
In Lysis' speech against Simon, for example, the speaker, a bachelor living in an abominable relationship, has his sister and nieces as inmates of his house, and he says, These ladies' life has been so decent and orderly that they are ashamed even for the men of their own household to set eyes upon them. In Demosthenes' speech against Conon, his unfortunate client, again a bachelor, has his mother keeping house for him. When, after his encounter with the Fighting Cocks Club, he is carried home, his cloak stolen, his lips split and both eyes closed, the ladies of his establishment, his mother and his female attendants, begin to weep and wail over his sad condition, but they do nothing else. His male acquaintances carry him off to the public bath, there fetch a doctor and finally move him to the house of a friend. Even as ministering angels, the Athenian women seem to have been ineffective. Only in the case of the imprisonment or the death of their male relatives do they come actively forward, and the business of mourning and funeral lamentation was, by convention, left almost entirely in their hands. Most of the Athenian women, then, as we see them in the writings of the orators, are mere passive animals. A few, and by no means the least successful, are open in their profligacy. Such a one is the mother of Aeschines, as we have her described by Demosthenes in the speech On the Crown. Such also the abominable pair, mother and daughter, who are chief characters in the speech Against Niera, which is attributed to Demosthenes. Here the mother, Niera, a woman of notoriously bad character, succeeds in marrying an Athenian citizen and her daughter Fano, a person as vicious as herself, by one of those strange turns of fortune only possible in a real democracy, becomes the wife of the King Archon, the head of the state religion, as we might say, wife of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Such another, finally, is the fair Antigona in Hiberides' speech, against Athenogenus, a lady who combined the professions of broker and courtesan, and was equally successful in both. Of women who are both virtuous and capable, the orators tell us singularly little, and the probable reason is that such women in Athens had almost ceased to exist. Demosthenes and his contemporaries represent the last stage, when their country was already on the brink of political extinction, and the men of Athens had no ideals or examples of womanly virtue to encourage them in their vain struggle against the great military power of the North. The lack of good women was a fatal disaster but it was a disaster which the Athenians had brought upon themselves, and it led them straight to ruin. End of section 12